Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Root Show, heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I usually play music. In fact, I'll be playing some music um, shortly because it'll fit in with the topic of the show. And I'm going to start off with um, Rockwell. Somebody's watching me because it's all about what we'll be talking about, privacy on the show tonight. And you can call in listeners at 424 675-8315, 424-675-8315. Because I'm very excited about the guests I'll have on tonight. But let's hear Rockwell featuring the one and only late Michael Jackson. And somebody's watching me on the Root and Root Show.
getting the idea that somebody's watching me and all, especially after reading the book I read in the past week. And I'm just honored to have on the program. This man is a legend. I mean, he has just done everything, met everyone, and just a superb writer. And I never thought when I read his book, with enough shovels back in, I guess, 1984, 85, that I actually had the opportunity 30-some years later to actually interview him. And I'm talking about the, if I can call you legendary, Robert Scher. He's the editor-in-chief of the uh, truthdig.org. He's a professor at the uh, USC University of Southern California's uh, School of Communications and Journalism, co-host of Left and Right Center, and the author of so many amazing books, and in particular, in his newest book, this is on uh, Nation Books Press, is They Know Everything About You, How Data-Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. And I just want to welcome you to the Root & Root Show, Robert Scheer. Just thank you so much for spending some time on this show. Yeah, and thank you for reading my book back in 1984. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, it was just an amazing book and really got me going to just really looking in, you know, looking further into the issue of the whole nuclear movement. But I want to talk about, you know, this new book, obviously, in particular. I want you, first of all, to talk about the Fourth Amendment because, you, you know, that's the main theme that I think of the book. And just talk about that in particular. Talk about the case, Supreme Court case last year. With the, you know the Roberts, uh, what Roberts decided on the Supreme Court involving smartphones. Yeah, it was really one of the most important decisions I think in the history of the court. And the good news is it was uh, bipartisan. It was everyone on the court, and Chief Justice Roberts wrote it. And and the language of it is really quite compelling, because he reminded us uh, of a couple of things. One that the Fourth Amendment. Uh, which is the one that prevents uh, the, the authorities, whether it be the king, started really in England with English common law. And he said right. that the king of England had, couldn't send his agents into the hut of the humblest peasants and rummage about in his private uh, things to make a case against him. You had to have a specific warrant. It had to be authorized by a magistrate. And, and so the framers of our Constitution felt the need to add that as one of the amendments in the Bill of Rights. And just as Roberts pointed out, it was that concern about warrantless searches being conducted by the agents of the king that sparked the American Revolution, because the opposition within the colonies was so widespread to these people coming in, whether it was to figure out whether you pay taxes or who you were, or what you were up to, that that was considered the most uh, sacred violation uh, and and uh, the most uh, concerning uh, uh, thing to prevent in the new government. Everybody forgets about our Bill of Rights. These were protections put in by the people who were going to be the government. And the same right. thing with... Uh, separation of powers, the same thing with, you know, all of the checks and balances that, that you know, here it was, uh, Madison and Jefferson and Washington, all these people said, you got to watch us. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We could become like the king. We could become like the people we're making the revolution against. 
And therefore, we have to guarantee the protection of the people so that they can then organize, they can then think, they can then assemble to redress grievances. And since 9-11, we turned that upside down. We said, oh, no, it's not the government that has to be watched. It's the people that have to be watched because the people are all full of potential terrorists and danger to the republic and so forth. And the other argument that has been made is that because of the new technology, you can't expect any kind of privacy. You can't expect to protect your information because it's all out there. And Justice Roberts addressed that specific argument. He said, this new technology doesn't make the Fourth Amendment irrelevant. He said, this new technology increases the importance of the Fourth Amendment. It's precisely because you have more information on your smartphone than you could ever have in a house. All of your records, all of your conversations, all of these things, that you have to have a more robust interpretation of the Fourth Amendment to protect it. And the case in in particular involves that you're arrested and you have a a smartphone on you, a regular cell phone even. And, And the police could not crack the code. They couldn't, even if they did, and they found all this information in your phone, all your letters and all of your records and all of your financial data, medical and everything, they could not use that to make a case against you in a trial. Because that was a general, uh, uh, you know, warrant. That was going after just anything you had. They needed a specific warrant that had been backed up by a magistrate. That's what the Fourth Amendment says. And this was an incredibly important decision. We'll see how readily the court will apply it to what the NSA, CIA, and everybody else is doing. But the principle couldn't have been clearer. Okay? You have a right to keep your data private. And if the government comes after, they have to have a specific reason that is presented to a magistrate. They have to have a specific warrant to go and come in and look for that thing. They can't just be looking for everything, like a vacuum cleaner. And now we know the government has been doing that. And so this this was a very important restriction. And it didn't get the attention in the media that it deserves. But it does set, you know, the gold standard right now. And it's so funny that uh, I don't think I've ever talked about Roberts in a, pro- pro- in a positive light on this show at all. So this is really, you know, that's a precedent there, too. But, I, you know, well, I, I think, wanna, you, know, you know, if you want to be, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Go, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. No, I mean, if you want to be positive, the positive thing here is that the companies that have been ripping off our private information, you know, because the real problem with the Internet, the Internet is a great tool. It's a great way of educating people. It's a great way of letting us know what's going on in the world. We can communicate with people who speak different languages. You know, when I was young, they said you got to learn Esperanto so you can talk to people in different countries or you got to learn all these foreign languages. Now you've got instant translation. We can read the press from all over the world. You can do all these wonderful things. The problem with the Internet is the only business model that's making all this money that allowed it was they're going after our privacy. That's why when you're online and you see these ads pop up, you know, whatever you've done, you just went to see a movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, you got ads popping up telling you about erotic literature or something, you know. So the targeted advertising is the basic business model on the Internet. Now, that would be okay if you knew what was being mined in your data, you had given approval, 
you could get rid of Google, you could go somewhere else, you know, whatever. The, the thing that happened after the Snowden leaks is we learned that, in fact, this data is not just in the private sector. It's not just an enhancement to your shopping. It's not just, you know, when they say, can we have your location when you're looking for a restaurant? You say, okay, I'll give you my location because I want to get the, you know, Chinese restaurant near me somewhere. You know, that's fine. But you didn't realize that you're giving your location not only to anybody else that wants to buy it, but automatically to your your government, to the FBI, to the CIA, to the NSA. And that we didn't know. And and what that does... Now, some people... Now, if I could just interrupt a second, Robert. Now, some people will say, well, you know... My government is protecting me from terrorists, therefore I'll give up all my information because I don't want another 9-11 to happen. And I'm playing devil's advocate with that, but... Yeah, well, you can play devil's advocate, but but then they should go live with the devil. You know, my feeling is, (laughs) I mean, then they don't understand what this whole freedom thing is about. I mean, the whole assumption of our system of government is that freedom is not a luxury to have when you have no danger and no threats. Because these guys gave us these protections when, you know, the English could have come back. They did come back in 1812, you know. Uh, and if the English had come back, they could have won, and they would be hanging Jefferson, you know, and Madison, everybody from the nearest tree. These guys gave us these protections when our country was at its riskiest moment. They had the arrogance to form a new country here in the wilderness, and they were going up against the most powerful government in the world, which was England. And if England didn't do it, it would be Spain or it would be France. So they enshrined these protections, not as a luxury and when you have no danger. They enshrined these protections at a time of great danger. And why did they do it? Because they said freedom is not a luxury. Freedom is a necessity to sound government. If you don't know what's going on, if you can't learn, if you can't challenge, if you can't question, then despots are going to take over. And the real danger is going to be internal. You're going to follow, you know, false prophets here. That was their whole concern. And so when they enshrined these protections, they weren't supposed to be abandoned because we were attacked. Now, the fact is the attack of 9-11, given the kinds of of things that have happened to people all over the world, we have been preaching this message of freedom to people all over the world, you know, whether they're in China, India, all throughout the Mideast, anything. Those people have all in their national histories experienced threats far greater than what we experienced on 9-11, okay? We were then and we are now the strongest country that ever existed, militarily, economically, all right? And, and the people attacking us, they have very minor means of hurting us, very minor technologically, you know. They don't have our aircraft carriers. They don't have the, the nuclear weapons. They don't have any of these things, you know. And, and the fact of the matter is, People around the world that we've preached this message, they have experienced civil war. They have experienced occupation. They've, been, you know, they've gone through a lot of nightmares in their existence. I don't care what nation you pick on that map. You'll find they got a rich history of, of being frightened by other people, of being attacked, of being conquered, and so forth. We didn't have that experience. And the fact of the matter is 9-11, you know, as tragic as it was, was a relatively minor threat to our security and well-being, Okay. And yet we jumped all over that and said, oh, there goes the freedom thing, you know. But it, it, it debased the main argument. The reason we want freedom is not because it weakens you. It's because it strengthens you. 
If we had freedom of information and knew what's going on, we wouldn't go have a war in Iraq over weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist, and the government knew they didn't exist. And, in fact, the basic argument on this whole thing of security, the president's own commission, and he knows this, could not come up with a single example where mining the data of all the people in this country, which is what they're doing, you know, that haystack of information to find the few dangerous terrorist needles, they couldn't come up with one example when the president, who should know better because he's a constitutional law professor, uh, and he should be using the bully pulpit of the presidency to educate us about this. Right. You know, instead, what did he do? He said, oh, we had this a terrible attack, and we wouldn't have known what the 19th, we couldn't figure out what the 19th hijacker in San Diego, Mindau, was doing, making a call to Yemen. Well, that was nonsense. The fact of the matter is the FBI could have gotten that information within five minutes, you know. And, and not only that, Mindar, the 19 terrorist, he was living at the home rented to him by an FBI informant. They were spying on him every minute. They knew when he left the country and knew when he came back. And the CIA had him on their radar. Now, the CIA and FBI didn't talk to each other. That, it wasn't like we didn't have enough dots. We didn't connect the dots. And, and, and the reality is you take the, the terrible cases like the Boston Marathon bombing. You talk, take the Charlie Hebdo cartoonist in France. In both of those instances, the people who are accused of committing those crimes were well known to the police. In fact, the guy in, in, in Paris, in Charlie Hebdo, he wanted them had already served time, okay? So what you needed was old-fashioned police work. Hey, what are these guys up to now? What are they doing? Where are they living? Let's go talk to their neighbors. You didn't have to collect the information on everybody in the world to figure out what those characters were doing, you know? And, and so the national security argument is a phony here. There is simply no evidence that the government has come up with that this makes us safer you know uh in fact it makes us da- more, a more dangerous situation because we're not willing to criticize we're not willing to challenge and we start to get into that 1984 brave new world world that's what i was going to bring up being observed yeah well we're being observed all the time and when you think you're being observed all the time you know you're living in a fishbowl and the government's watching you all the time you're going to self-censor you're not going to have provocative thoughts you're not going to challenge anybody. You're going to go along to get along, you know? And that has been the main experience with totalitarian countries. And, and to, you know, you've got to ask yourself a question. How did the German people, who were the best educated, uh, you know, people in the world that had the highest level of music and science, how did they go along with this lunatic Hitler? Funny-looking guy telling him about the master race. He didn't look like he was any master race. You know, why did they go along, you know? Because they got into a, a, a cultish feeling of not questioning, of accepting whatever the, the, the Nazis told them. Same thing has happened in every totalitarian situation. People get into self-censorship. They're worried about the authorities. They stop raising tough questions. They're suspicious of their neighbors, and they don't, they don't challenge. And when you don't challenge, your government can lead you by the nose into very dangerous situations, which is what has been happening to us since 9-11. And do you think that um, you think we're at that point about being about a totalitarian state? Is it there yet? But we're dangerously close because what you mean by and this was the importance of those books, 1984, you know, Orwell and Brave New World, right. all this Huxley, is to remind us that the totalitarian experience does not necessarily mean having police in your face all the time. 
you know, it's like the, the old experiment. I remember as a kid uh, when I was going to college, I worked in the post office for uh, four years, you know, sorting mail and everything. And in those days, people used to send a lot of money in the mail. So we knew we were being observed. But we never knew when we were being observed because the people, the inspectors observing us were up there on top, you know, by the ceiling, up there patrolling. So there could be no one in there, but you still acted as if you were observed. Well, that works fine in a prison system. It doesn't work fine in a free society. Because if you think you're being observed all the time, you're going to play it safe. You're not going to go read books. Right now, because of the Internet and the way it works, you can find out what book someone bought or what movie they went to. You can figure out what, what page they read to in that book, you know. Uh, who did they meet with after? What emails did they send? You know, here you have Hillary Clinton. She didn't trust her own State Department with her emails. That's what gets me. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She didn't, you know, she had to That should tell you something the right garage. there. That, that, that should tell yeah. you. Right. She, could, she was going to keep her email, all of it, in, in, in her computer in the garage because she didn't trust the State Department that she was in charge of to read her email, okay, with all of their claim restrictions or what have you, and yet she attacked Edward Snowden as a traitor for telling us that the government, which she was part of, was snooping on all of our emails. I mean, go, go figure that one out, you know. This is a woman I, you know, supported. I wrote favorably about over the years, you know. I, I actually was invited to a White House dinner where she said I was her favorite columnist in the whole world. But I'll tell you, when I read that, I was so shocked. You know, just think of the arrogance of that, that, you, that you're telling the rest of the American people you don't even have a right to know that the government right. is grabbing your, your email from Google and breaking into their fiber optic cables, you know, breaking into what a private company is doing to get your email. They don't even trust Google to do it. They're going to they're gonna get a backdoor there and go in and grab this thing, and you actually trust the government so much so we won't even tell you that they're doing it. I mean, one of my arguments is, if you want to do this and you need to do this, tell us why. Tell us why you've got to look through all our emails. You know, this is supposed to be a representative republic. Tell us why, what you're doing and why you need to do it. And then we can vote you out if we don't want that, or we can leave you in power and go ahead and do it. But they didn't do that. They lied to us about it. They kept this darkest secret. They has, any, has, anyone in, has anyone actually said why? Because I was looking in your book, I don't see any... Wise and, and and folks like Google and their connection with NSA and all that, has they actually explained why they are doing this? Well, they claim now that they were forced to do it. I think the record is a little murkier than that. Uh, what happened was they they drank the Kool Aid. You know, they were said, "Oh, come into the right. government. We're going to work with you. We'll make your assistance more secure." And it's what what Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, warned about when he warned about the military-industrial complex. Well, we now have a military intelligence complex, and you co-opt these people. In the book, I discuss how the CIA even formed over 200 uh, Silicon Valley companies, gave them money, gave them access to information. You know, uh, one of the biggest data mining companies that I only recently learned from some leaked documents that were around uh, that they actually do the data mining in the Los Angeles Police Department where I live. They do it in New Orleans Police Department. They do it for every uh, national intelligence agency. It's a privately held company that was initially started with money from the CIA 
and, and that was their only customer for three years. So you have the CIA doing something that's against its charter, meddling around in domestic American life. They're not allowed to do that. And they form these companies that are ostensibly private. They get to grab all your data. So there was a too close, far too close a connection. The, the Internet itself was started as a government project under the DARPA. That was in the case of a nuclear war. You were supposed to have redundancy. It became, a, they saw it, people started to see it as a big way of making money. It's made an enormous amount of money. And so this marriage between the government and the private sector has been longstanding. And until Snowden came around, they wouldn't own up to it, these private companies, you know. Uh, but we now learn not only that their connection was so intimate, but also when the company started to worry about it, uh, the government then threatened them with jail time and big fines. And you had it very recently, by the way. Here, Google and Apple and Facebook, they want to now expand encryption, right? They want to they say, we're the custodians of this data. And we want to help the customers encrypt it so the government, or no government around. Remember, we're not just talking about the U.S. government. Because whatever the U.S. government can do, any government can do in the right. world. They can talk, that uh, Robert, I want you to talk about the Europeans, because they're, they're not taking us unlike the United States. And talk about them, because you mentioned that in the book. Yeah, you know how great it is to be interviewed by somebody who's actually read the bloody book? You know, <laughs> really, I mean, it's quite a shock, you know, because very often. Well, I want to get, and I want to get the folks who are listening in right now to read the book. They know everything about you. There's Robert Shear, who's on the line right now, and you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. So, yeah, talk about, the Euro, you know, what the Europeans are doing. Well, I mean, the, the reason that Google and Facebook and Apple are now pushing back that's why they're doing encryption. And then, you know, the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, condemned Apple and condemned Google for trying to protect the people using their services. They said, you're going to allow criminals and pederasts and all these people to get this data nowhere after. You know, it's just a terrible attack on, on these major American companies. And the reason the American companies are pushing back is they're multinational corporations, okay? So the example you use of Europe, you know, the fact is, Google, you know, has 90% of the search traffic in Europe, okay? It's a big part of their market. Google and Apple, their profit model, we've got a saturated market here in the United States for a lot of this stuff. Their whole model is to expand to China, India, everywhere else in the world. Well, those people, you know, maybe Americans think their government is all so benign and always, you know, which is crazy if you watch the movie Selma, You'll see, you know, the FBI went out to destroy Martin Luther King uh, and try to get him to commit suicide. You know, that wasn't benign. Uh, we have lots of examples of, you know, where the government doesn't act in our, our best interest. But the fact of the matter is, you know, no one else in the world is going to accept this idea that your American government there is benign. You told us you're multinational companies, right? Google, Apple, Facebook. You, you claim to be multinational you're telling us, go with us. Don't go with some Chinese company or some Indian company. Well, are you really multinational if, in fact, we find that you are subservient to the government that was spying on the cell phone of Angela Merkel, you know, uh, the prime minister of Germany? You know, uh, what, what, kind of, what, what kind of benign experience is that? Or the head of Brazil? You know, so if, you, if you're, you're working under the thumb of a government, 
uh, that are spying on everybody around the world. Well, how can we trust you? And so these companies have been pushing back. But now, yeah, people around the world have been pushing back. So, you know, and, and what, what we do, you know, in the case of Europe, they have a European court. The European court decided, and it's not, you can't appeal it now. The European court decided, and it, you know, they've got Google trucks running all around Europe, voting around, you know, video of everybody's house. You know, right? It's a miraculous. You put an address in, you see somebody's house, you can see who's in front of it and all that. Well, people said, we don't want Google running around here. We don't want Google doing our search engine, compiling who we are without, you know, being able to push back. And and that's what right. alarmed Google and alarmed Apple. These people are going to push back, and they say, wait a minute, whose data is that? You know, we didn't give you permission to use that data. What are you doing with this data? So you didn't mind that Google truck running around, right, as long as you thought it was just Google trying to help you, uh, you know, find a new house or something. But if you thought, hey, we got these Google trucks running all around France and Italy and Spain and everywhere, photographing everybody's house, and that information all goes to an American intelligence agency that then can spy on us all the time, you know? And that message doesn't go over well in Europe. It doesn't go over in the rest of the world. And what you're going to end up with, which is what the Internet companies are really afraid of, is balkanization, you know, breaking everything up. And you lose the World Wide Web. You lose. You know, we just won a Truth Dig, the magazine I edit. We just got nominated. We've won five times for Webby Awards, you know, for Best Political Blog, and we just got nominated once again. And what I'm saying is stuff that people in this industry know in their gut. This worldwide web, which is a marvelous thing, can be destroyed very easily if people around the world say, wait a minute, who are you working for? Are you working for me or are you working for, for your government? And your government is not my government. I don't get to vote there. I don't get to control it. I don't have the trust and love for your government that you seem to have. You know, so don't come with your little cars, Google cars running around here taking a picture of my house, you know. And then what's more, they happen to vote for people in France and Italy who then get elected and say, yeah, we don't want you being able to do that. That destroys the business model of Google and Apple and, you know, Facebook. Well, you know, that's what gets me as far as the first chapter in your book, which is so weird because there's this dichotomy of these folks at this TED conference cheering Edward Snowden, who's there as a with the uh, as a robot, but these are the same folks who are in bed with the NSA and CIA. And I just want you to talk about you know that particular conference with Ed Snowden there, Edward Snowden there. Well, you know, Snowden is one of the most fascinating people we've ever individuals we've ever had. You know, and and it reminds me very much of, of Daniel Ellsberg. I don't know if people listening to this, remember, but he's the guy who gave us the Pentagon Papers, you know, 45 years ago. And I knew Ellsberg then. I was at his trial, you know, and when it turned out the U.S. government had tried to bribe the judge with a job of being head of the FBI, and the judge had to recuse himself in that mistrial. But Ellsberg was very much like Snowden. He was working for what was a private company, the Rand Corporation, that had a contract with the Air Force, and he worked on the Pentagon Papers, which was a history of how we got into Vietnam and what was it all about, which really blew away the main argument for being there. It just destroyed it, but it was kept secret. And Ellsberg had believed in the war. He'd been a Marine. He'd been, you know, carried a gun in Vietnam as an advisor. He He was high up in the Pentagon, and then he worked on that study. 
And the study said, wait a minute, the American people have been fed a tissue of lies. Why are we in Vietnam? Who was this? What are we fighting there for? What's it all about? Nowadays, if you ask anybody, well, how can you defend the Vietnam War? They would look at you with a blank stare. What was that about? You know, the argument was if we don't defeat these communists in Vietnam, we'll have to defeat them in San Diego. Well, you go to San Diego, the only place you'll find these Asian communists, they're still communists in China and Vietnam, is they're fighting each other over shelf space at Costco, you know, or Walmart. I mean, that, that's the big threat in San Diego, right? And, and uh, you know, the fact is, and most of the communist organizations are still like that, but most of them, they, they're not, they don't work together. They're they never did work together, you yeah. know. Yeah, all these yeah. well, facts. we knew that from Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia broke away. Little Yugoslavia under Tito, he said, hey, I'm a nationalist. I'm Yugoslav first, you know. And that's what was going to happen, and it did happen in Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh, it was a, a nationalist leader. They'd been fighting the French. Now the American comes in and they're going to take the place of the French is going to fight them. I knew that. I was there in 64, 65, writing about this. Everybody knew that. They didn't tell us, you know, the so-called experts. And what the Pentagon Papers told us is what the government knew. This thing was a fraud. And, in fact, you know, we lost in Vietnam in the most ignominious defeat in American history. And what happened? They didn't invade. They couldn't invade San Diego. They didn't have any kind of boats that could cross the the ocean. I mean, the whole thing was nuts. Uh, but what happened when they lost is they went to war. Well, who did they go to war with? They went to war with another communist country. The Chinese and the Vietnamese were shooting at each other over their border, over where the border is. And they're still fighting over some islands that have oil there. You know? They're fighting right now. They're, they're, they're occasionally flaring up. They're denouncing each other. So this whole idea of a monolithic communist movement in the world that was going to threaten us was a fabrication. That doesn't make them nice guys. It doesn't mean you'd want to live under their rule or anything. It just means they did not represent the threat, you know, that was pictured. And the Pentagon Papers, which was highly classified, more than the material that Snowden had access to, revealed all that. So Daniel Ellsberg went up the street on, on Pico Boulevard, which I happened to be stuck in traffic just a few hours ago, and I actually went by the place where he there was a copy shop there, a copy places had to make copies in those days back in the nineteen uh, late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, and 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 then he xeroxed this stuff and he tried to give it to some senators just like Snowden did, and then they they were scared. He gave it to the New York Times and they printed it, and then a judge stopped him and he gave it to the Washington Post, and that's how we learned about this stuff, uh, and we learned. You know, what, what most people know now, that the Vietnam War that took the lives of almost 59,000 Americans, had one of them, Ron Colbert, he not lost his life, but lost three-quarters of his body, speaking in my class last week. You know, he's, he's got real medical problems that continue. And then you have the three-and-a-half million uh, Vietnamese and Indo-Chinese people who got killed in that war, and nobody can make sense of it. Right now, you got this whole thing is supposed to be done to stop terrorism. Terrorism is being presented the same way communists was, undifferentiated. Yeah, I'm, glad, I'm about to ask you about that. Same well, yeah, it's yeah, such garbage. Proceed. It's such garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I just I do this radio show on left, right, and center. I just on it this this morning, and you know, my conservative opponent he's trying to explain. Well, we got to stop Muslim fanaticism. Which Muslim fanaticism? The Muslim fanaticism we support in Saudi Arabia because they let us get their oil and they cooperate, you know, the same 
Muslim fanaticism in, North, in Saudi Arabia, where 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 came from with perfectly legal Saudi uh, papers, passports, you know, or when bin Laden came from, or where most of the money that backed al-Qaeda came from, you know, that's the Muslim. No. Uh, then, you know, uh, some other guys. Well, it's ISIS. Well, ISIS is a, a movement that, hey, we thought they were pretty good freedom fighters when they were going up against Assad. Well, he wasn't a Muslim fanatic, right? He, 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 he's more secular, and he backs minorities. He's not even backed by the Muslims. Okay, and then you got the other enemy, uh, the Shia. And, and you know, and and, uh, and you got uh, uh, Iran and Iraq. Okay, are they the Muslim fanatics? Well, the whole battle now is between Saudi Arabia and its Sunni and the Shia. Now we created a situation in Iraq. We got rid of another guy who was pretty secular. Whatever the problem with Saddam Hussein, like Assad, like Gaddafi in Libya, these guys were not what, the kind of religious fanatics and nuts that Saudi Arabia has been backing. They were just old-fashioned dictators, right? And, and, in fact, Iraq was the one place where al-Qaeda couldn't operate during that whole period, you know, because he smashed them. You know, they were a threat to him. Same thing in Syria. So I was against them, you know, Gaddafi, the same thing. So we get rid of those uh, old-fashioned dictators, and we open the door for a branch of Wahhabism, a particular narrow branch of, of the Muslim religion. I don't know why we smear all the Muslims in the world. I mean, there's a you know, very small number of Muslims in Saudi Arabia compared to the number that live in Indonesia, for example, you know, uh, they're not hijacking planes and going after us. I mean, so we've get smeared all of this Muslim religion with the uh, uh, tar of, of the particular group of, of uh, nutcases that are in the one country where we have close relations, Saudi Arabia. Okay. So, you know, uh, meanwhile, they're op opposed to uh, Iran. And then now we have a whole argument, can we have a peace agreement with Iran of any kind? Well, Saudi Arabia doesn't want that. The Israeli government doesn't want that. So we got to what? We're going to have the big argument now for the next few years. Uh, can we negotiate uh, uh, with, with uh, Iran? Okay. But as I pointed out this morning on the show, I said, wait a minute, which Muslims are you talking about? Because, you know, it's like Christians. You know, you had, you had uh, Catholic terrorists and you had Protestant terrorists in Ireland. Which, which, which group are you going to blame this on, on Jesus? You know, uh, uh, which one? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, you know, just think about it. You know, we, we, we don't think rationally about these things. Yeah, people use religion. Yeah, people use Karl Marx. Karl Marx was rolling over in his grave, you know. Uh, yeah, we're using something called communism, you know. Well, what was that about? You know, right now, the President of the United States has said, I heard him today saying, hey, maybe we should take Cuba off the terrorist list, terrorism list, you know. Uh, we're going to now open up to Cuba, allow more tourism and so forth, maybe have an embassy there. Well, well how did we ever get to think of Cuba as this great menace to, to, to the United States? You know, I was down there in Cuba. You know, one good thing about being an old guy, uh, you got, and it was been a journalist, <laughs> I have some experience. You know, I was there in Cuba in 1960. I'd been teaching at the City College in New York. I saw a sign on the wall say, hey, you want to go to Cuba? You get down there, you can pick, you know, sugar, I'll cut sugar canes, and you get, you know, 25 bucks. Well, I went down there, you know, with uh, my, my wife. We went down our little uh, 1955 Volkswagen bug, and we to Key West, and we get over there. I was there when they put this embargo on Castro. Now, you know, Castro had only been in power a year and a half, and, and, uh, 
Castro had been opposed by the Cuban Communist Party until six months before he overthrew Batista. It was a whole fantasy. I don't know if you remember, but Castro came up to Harlem. He was at the Hotel Teresa, you know. The thing that was alarming about him is that people liked him, you know. So people who wanted to go back to the old way. There's uh, a book that I I have about him when he meets Malcolm X and the whole experience being in Harlem. It's really something. Yeah, well, people were treating him. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to get back, you know, to the, I mean, you are a fountain of just amazing. And I could talk to you all night. I know listeners want to get in here at 424-675-8315. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but is this clear? Because I'm talking on a cell phone. I have a landline. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear. Yeah, it's very clear. Now, as far as getting back to the book, uh, They Know Everything About You, you know, it's, and my, I'm going to speak for myself. I got, you know, I got very depressed. But then you have some hope at the end, and I just want you to talk about the hope because it seems like there's nothing. I know, I know some people who want to get completely off the grid, not be on anything, be it the internet, yeah. cell phones, you, lots, you name lots it. Lots of luck with that. Yeah, lots of luck with that. You can't function without it anymore. You end up living in a little hut somewhere. You know, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I think I know where you're going with your argument. I don't know if you saw, did you see the John Oliver uh, shot where he went to Moscow to talk to Edward Snowden? You know, um, anyway, it was just last week. I missed that note. Hello? Okay, go ahead. Oh, it, yeah. it was a good shot because he, he, he you know, John Oliver, you know, has a show, I right. forget what it's called, the, the week that was or something, you know. But anyway, I think he's very good. <laughs> And he, he he goes first, he sends some people out to Times Square, and it turns out a lot of people don't even know who Edward Snowden was, or he did something bad, or he weakened our country, you know, kind of stupid stuff. And they don't really follow it that closely. But, so then he goes and he shows this to Snowden, <laughs> and Snowden turns out to be, I, I never got to the Snowden-Ellsberg comparison, but Snowden, you know, this guy's pretty amazing, 29-year-old guy, and he really got his head screwed on right and he lays it out what he's done and how careful he's been about that and he left the decision up to the the guardian and the washington post to decide what to print and so he he lays this on this so john Oliver says but you know none of these people seem to really care they don't know what you did and then he said except the bright side is he said we asked them you know uh but what about if the government is is you know Checking out your 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 private stuff, particularly your most private stuff, you know, and your junk. Okay, so he lays it out. He's got these people. They just change their whole attitude. They say, "Oh, the government's doing that. That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, that's the, you know, that's awful. You know, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. You know, we should rise up, challenge them. Uh, you know." So the fact is, people go along with this stuff until they get glimpses into how pervasive it is. How Deep it goes, you know. So when we had that scandal, remember with with uh, the celebrity photos being revealed oh, yeah, and you know. been posted on the app, suddenly people said, "Wait a minute, all my photos, everything? Yeah, your photos, everything. You know, the the, the size of your underwear, you know, everything uh, is out there now. Just think about it. You know, how many cavities you got, and who's the dentist that did the work? I mean, you go right down the line, everything. You know, and then." Uh, and then you ask yourself the question, do you want that available? You know, do you want people to know that? And there's no control. Uh, why? Because our government took away, this is really critical to the whole 
thing, and the book discusses that. You can stop this problem very simply by affirming that the data belongs to the individual. And the individual gives up data, right? It's for a specific uh-huh. purpose. If Yelp asks me, can we use your location, right? Then there's a, so there's a term of agreement that you never read and everything. If you read it carefully, you discover if you give them that, that your location, they can give it to anybody. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. Right. In okay. fact, there so was, I, I don't know if you, Rob, Robert, I don't know if you saw, there was a study, I think a month ago, where these folks uh, were showing this stuff and saying, sign this agreement, and in a small print it said, we will get all your children. <laughs> I didn't see and that. Nobody, people, people sign They didn't read it. Right. right. Yeah, yeah because you're so anything. eager to find out where the movie is playing, you know, or where, where is that rib place that I went to and I'm now with some friends and I know it's around here. Right. And then this message pops up, you know, can we use your location, you know, and you say, sure. And you don't realize, okay, now anybody who wants to buy that data and any government that wants to grab it, they can find I mean, any government, any government, state, local, foreign, what have you wants to grab it, and they can then take that data and they can figure out who you had dinner with, where you went after, what you did later, and map out your whole life. And not only that, you got your picture on Facebook or something, they can do the biometrics of your eyeball or anything else. They can get samples of your DNA a thousand different ways. Uh, We're going to have the Apple Watch uh, soon, and so they'll be able to know your heartbeat at that moment, your body temperature at that moment. I mean, it's data is so invasive, so invasive that the John Oliver thing about their knowing, you know, having a picture of your junk was realistic. And what they don't know now, they're going to know ten times more in a year or two from now. That's because right. you're getting all of these all of these biometric markers and so forth. So you're this person walking on the street and say, okay, yeah, I'll give you my location. You didn't know you were also giving your location to all these police forces or people who want to scam you, scam artists. You know, crooks. And, and what you mentioned in the book, too, Robert, is that there are people, as we're speaking right now, that are bidding for that information. Like yeah, it's Wall well, Street. That's how, yeah. Yeah, that's how they... I mean, they, it's constantly bidding. You got folks are, yeah. Right. Yeah, they're, they're bidding for the space near your, your Gmail. I, you know, I always ask people, I mean, people are really deliberately stupid about this because they want to lull themselves into a feeling of confidence. We all do it. Trust me. I, I I gave my thumbprint to Apple about 30 times already today, maybe 50, all right? I use an Apple iPhone 6, you know, and I, boom, right. I, I give, I'm, I'm stupid in doing it. I know so much about this. I shouldn't do it. No, I do. I mean, I'll admit, but the convenience yeah, of man. the moment, the convenience of the moment, you know, I got, oh, damn, I'm stuck. I'm late. I want to get there. I got to meet somebody. I'm meeting somebody for an interview now. Boom. Yep, 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 yep. Check me out. Check me out. Check me out. Tell me how I get, you know, eight blocks from now and show me a little map. Yeah, okay. And and I, even though I've written this book, I'm not going to stop doing that knowing that people all over the world eventually are going to be able to know exactly what I did for the last five hours. And now, if you right. had any totalitarian government in the history of humanity, okay, asking you to give them your thumbprint, your fingerprint, every time you make a move, every time you get up from a restaurant and go somewhere else, 
every time you go watch a movie, every time you, you know, do anything, you know, order a coffee or order a beer, whatever, and they can take that thumbprint and connect it with somebody else's thumbprint and say, oh, you had that beer with the following three people. And then two of them left 20 minutes later, but another one went home with you, you know. And uh, and then what you did is you put on a movie on television. This is the movie you watched, you know. Uh, and, and then you made a phone call. And then the person you're with, they left. You have a surveillance system, you know, that this is what we mean by totalitarian. And it works because people have been lulled into a false sense of security. That's the whole drill here. The ultimate totalitarian model is to get you to think that there's nothing going on that you should be wary of, okay? And to let other people think for you. Yeah, this is just for your convenience, and we're going to make you safe, 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 safe. And in the process, you're going to lose your freedom, but what was that anyway? I can't even remember what that was because I don't believe in elections anymore, and I get the same crooks all the time, and cynicism becomes the order of the day, Right. You know, and, and this ability to, to track people is, is incredible. Now, what we are is at the very beginning of this whole revolution uh, against privacy. Uh, we think we're pretty far advanced, but really only at the beginning. And the ability in a matter of just two, three years to track people instantly, constantly, and now you've got all these supercomputers and this massive data storage, which gets cheaper and cheaper, that you'll be able – you know, the, I, I mentioned earlier the example of Martin Luther King. I happen to know a lot about it because I published Martin Luther King at times when others, like the New York Times, didn't, like when he gave the famous speech at Riverside Church, and I knew the man. And, and I, when I got a hold of some of these documents and could read these documents about what the government did to King, I even interviewed – the number three guy, Deke DeLoach, in the FBI, who was sort of helping organize oh, yeah. that. So I've been on top of that story forever. And you think about what they did with Martin Luther King. was so primitive to what can be now done effortlessly. So, okay, you wanted to find out, you want to blackmail Martin Luther King. That was the point of the exercise, destroy him. So you had to get somebody to have the hotel room next to him, or you had to tap into his physical landline on the phone, right? Or you had to follow him in a car or on foot, see where he's going. That was all cumbersome. The record keeping was cumbersome. You didn't have computers. You had to file copies. They were put in file cabinets. Somebody had to read those things. And then no one could, how would you make a correlation between what you had on that guy and what you had on, you know, 20 other guys, let alone 20 million other people, right? Now, with this new technology, you, can, you don't have to be anywhere near King. You know, you could be monitoring from another country. As long as you have yeah, access, right. right? You have access to his banking account. You have access to what, his library account. Everything. Everything. And because of supercomputers and data storage, you can correlate that with 20 million other people. And then you can frame people innocently or intentionally. You know, there's the example of the guy in Portland, uh, you know, who they got erroneously because he correlated with something somewhere. And the next thing you knew, he was dragged out of his house in front of his children and everything else, you know. And it took him forever to try to get that sorted out. So, you know, we, we don't know what watch list you're on or who you're having coffee with who was on some watch list, whether they should have been on that watch list. And the main 
point to take away from this is we have turned the American experiment in representative government on its head. So instead of our feeling free and open to watch and criticize our government, because they have power over us, it is the government that has now total license to monitor us and treat the citizenry as objects of suspicion. That's the takeaway from this. That certainly is. And, Robert, I, I, could, I, I really want to get you on again because I think we're just warming up with this. But you would just, any you time know, you any time you read a book or an article of mine and you want to talk to me, I'm happy because I can't tell you it takes the work part out. When I got to first tell people what's in the book, it gets really tedious, and then it's a pleasure well, I, talking I to you because because you're you're familiar with the materials. So I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity. I want to thank you for writing this book and all everything you've done over the years. And we didn't even mention the fact that you were the editor of Ramparts way back in the '60s and all. Yeah, and Ramparts is where we exposed the CIA meddling in everybody's life, and that caused the help caused the church uh, committee, and and now all of that's been wiped out. What what this book is about makes what we did in Ramparts look like you know uh, a party trick or something. It was really minor compared to what they do now. Oh, it is, and it is something. But Robert, I just want to thank you for being on again. I'll be calling on okay. you many many times. Just thanks so much and. Thanks for writing this book. No. You just take care. Take care. Bye. All right. And again, that was Robert Share. The book is They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. It's on Nation Books Press. And I think everyone, if you have a cell phone, if you have use a computer, if you just are living, I think you need this book. This is one of the most important books I've read in a long, long time. And I read a ton of books, but this thing is just amazing. And Robert Sherry, he's a legend. He's a legendary person as far as journalism and just seeking out the truth. And go to his website, uh, truthdog.com. Let me make sure I got that right. It is, yeah, it's uh, truthdog.com. Truthdig, I'm sorry, truthdig.com. His online magazine also... um, Listen to his show, Left, Right, and Center. It's on NPR. It's uh, KCWR on the West Coast. You know, just he's just amazing, guys. So I'm just happy to have him on. But the main thing that came out of this is this freedom. And I'm going to play right now because Robbie kept mentioning the words freedom. And we're going to play right now little Farrell Sanders. And this is Farrell Sanders' uh, you got to have freedom. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Thank you. 
right, that was the great saxophonist, the one and only Farrell Sanders, and that was You Gotta Have Freedom, and that was dedicated to my guest who was just on a few minutes ago, Robert Sher, the author of the book, They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy, and it's on Nation Books, uh, pick it up if you can, and great interview, we're going to have him back on here sometimes, I hope you enjoyed that interview, but he was talking about, you know, you know, our freedoms, you know, there aren't too many of them around anymore. You know, it's like um, it's just really bad. We've given up a lot of our privacy for supposedly protecting us from terrorism threats. So just pick the book up, you know, just re-listen to the interview again, you know, because it will be downloaded and available on iTunes as well as on delayed basis on KUHS. Denver Radio and Television, and that's uh, run by Henry Archuleta. I want to thank Henry for putting me on there. So it'll be on. You'll be hearing this with folks in Denver on Saturday. It would be Saturday. Today's Friday, but it'll be Saturday. So I just want to say hi to all my friends out there who listen to the show. And thank you for all the information as far as information as far as topics you want on the show and music and the support that you've given me. Prior to this show and other shows, there, so just thank you so much. And anyone out there, because I get a lot of folks who um, suggest topics for the show, you can just go on Facebook, look for me, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. Go to Twitter. Um, you can tweet me there. It's Unifix, U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C, S as in Sam. So hashtag Unifix, and then also you can... Go to the blogtalkradio.com site and look for The Root and Root Show, and you'll find me there. And, you know, we're getting a lot of followers and supporters, so, yeah, join, join the family here. Join it. And we're going to get ready to get some more music in here. And this week we saw the anniversary of two folks' birthdays I'm going to be playing, two birthday folks, amazing folks in the history of this country as far as well, this first person besides music, just civil rights, the rights of everyone around the world, freedom in particular. And I'm talking about the amazing, the great Paul Robeson. And I'm going to play two songs from him. The first being Minstrel Boy and then No More Auction Block for Me. So let's hear the great Paul Robeson on the Root and Root Show. Oh. 
Strange Fruit. We're going to start the segment off with Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit. So let's hear that. It's all about lynching. So let's hear this on the Root and Root Show. Yeah. 
That he's cooled off 
one. That one came apart there, but that was a uh, Billy Holiday little sequence there. That was uh, they can't take that away from me. Then we did before that sun showers and solitude. Lady sings the blues. I must have that man. Autumn in New York feels like autumn in New York here, even though it's supposed to be spring. But it's a little chilly. It's been like that around the country, and finally we started off with Strange Fruit on the Root and Root Show. As we get to more music here, and I'm going to play right now. I think we'll do Jason Moran. I think we'll do some Jason Moran and that the Planet Rock. You know, that was the little kind of disco house party song. And we're going to, this is Jason Moran, the pianist's interpretation of it. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
the sensational Nightingales and the Five Blind Boys of Alabama. And Five Blind Boys, I'm sorry, yeah, of Alabama, that Mississippi of Alabama. And I'm going to play Reminiscing with the Blind Boys as we go. And see you next time. So this is Greg Rasheed going love and going peace. We'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. The other day, I was at the American Gospel Quartet Convention. And one of my old friends walked up to me and he said, Roscoe, do you ever think about the blind boy? I said, which one? I said, the blind boys of Alabama? He said, no. I said, but which one are you talking about? He said, the blind boys of Mississippi. I said, every day of my life, I can I can still hear shouting Lord J.T. and Bill Axe singing along with me. Sometimes riding along in my car, I can still hear them singing. Oh, glory. And it seems like I can hear them right now. I've got a few
just a man, well, a man on the river. That man is giving, that man is giving water for the thirsty, bread for the home, shelter for the outdoors. Hey! That man is giving sight. Give sight, give sight, give sight to the blind. 